Hello, everybody. This is Mel Allen. No, this is Tony Mazur, host of the Check Your Brain podcast, wherever you get your finer podcasts, as well as on Patreon if you want to subscribe. Go to patreon.com, look for my name, Tony Mazur. Five bucks a month, unlimited amount of podcasts. Could be a couple a week, could be several a week. So go check that out. Extra podcasts, bonus content, and access to guests before you even can think of them. When they get released here, you might have heard this months ago if you subscribe on Patreon. Who knows? Just love this theme. Just fantastic. Like, you knew when this song was going to be played, your This Week in Baseball was coming on. Mel Allen. Although, when I was growing up, I think Ozzy Smith ended up hosting it right after Mel Allen died. But why am I playing this? Why the heck am I playing old twib music? Well, because I like it. It should be my theme song. I kind of like that. But no, I'm playing this uh, because I had a great interview. It was a fun conversation. And we went down the road of old baseball. Now, a lot of people know me. When it comes to sports and baseball in general, eh, I, I really have not watched much baseball recently. Because I, and I, I mentioned it in this interview that the, the high strikeout percentage and the amount of launch angle attempts at home runs and hitting into the teeth of the shift bores me to death when it comes to current present-day baseball. But I kind of like the old days. I like the slap hitters of the Wade Boggs and the Tony Gwynns of the world. Guys who put the ball in play. Guys who didn't strike out. Guys who tried to hit and run and steal bases and make good plays. I like the days of the AstroTurf on the field. I like the days of the Marlboro Man on the scoreboard, which I talk about as well. Well, what years am I talking about? Well, 70s, 80s, 90s, but specifically we're going to talk about 1986. So my guest here today, and it's a really interesting interview because this guy is not necessarily a, he's not a sports writer. He's a science professor and he's an author, but a longtime baseball fan. And his name is Brad Baluchian. So in 2020, he came out with a book, it's called Wax Pack. And what he did is he got a pack of baseball cards with the bubble gum inside of them. And he decided instead of keeping the cards and putting them away or using them as bookmarks, he looked at the cards and said, wonder what these guys are doing right now. So he went and traveled the country to find the 14 players that were in this wax pack, 13 of them still alive, one of them passed away. And he goes through this. And it's really interesting story of them telling their stories. And in the process, he tells his story as well. So it's not just a hardcore sports book or sports biography. It's a very interesting tale, and it's called Wax Pack. It's available now on Amazon, and you, you can find him on social media. You can find him on his website as well. Brad Balukjian, B-A-L-U-K-J-I-N, just in case you wanted to know, Balukjian. And he was my guest talking about his book, Wax Pack, a pack of Topps cards from 1986. So we talk a little bit about that. Hope you enjoy this podcast, especially if you're a baseball fan. But you don't just have to be a baseball fan. This is a, like I say, this nice slice of Americana right here. It's Tony Mazur here, and... Uh, proud to have this interview here because I'm a big fan of nostalgic baseball. If you go on my Twitter account and my pinned tweet right now, 
is I said that baseball and sports in general were much better when the Marlboro Man was on the scoreboards. <laughs> and you think about it, as silly as that seems, you go, okay, well, the, you look in San Francisco with the drive, and you see when, uh, when Joe Montana's throwing the pass to Dwight Clark, the Marlboro Man's up there. Now, I'm not advocating smoking or tobacco use, but I'm just saying that the 86 Mets were there, and Shea Stadium had the Marlboro Man, and... Uh, you know, the drive and the fumble with the Browns versus the Broncos that was going on. And I just thought sports in general were seemed much better at that time. And I'm huge into nostalgia. And as somebody who was, uh, uh, I was looking around for people to interview, and this would be great, is uh, I saw this book. It was called Wax Pack. And we'll talk about it. And it's about the, this Topps baseball cards from 1986 and I'm like, well, that's perfect. That's the nostalgia. I mean, that's 1986 was the thick of the the softball uniforms in baseball and the tobacco ads on the scoreboards. I'm like, well, I got to talk to this guy. And that guy is the author of this book, Wax Pack. It's Brad Belukjian here on the show. And uh, Brad, th- th- thanks so much for joining us here. And uh, I mean, first of all, the, the first thing I got to ask you about this Wax Pack is it also was those the pack of uh, pack of cards that had the gum. How was the gum? And uh, <laughs> horrific, uh, every bit as bad as, I mean, it was bad in 1986, right? So in 2015, when I when I did this, uh, it was that much worse. It wasn't Bazooka Joe, and it wasn't, it sure wasn't Bubblicious. It was just, I, I remember in the days of getting the, the it was just terrible. I mean, I well, remember, I remember probably in the early 90s when they were still having a couple of leftover gum packs and I would try it. And I, I don't know, I think that's probably why I needed braces for a number of years. Well, when I so in the research for the book and the book opens up in set in the Topps factory in 1985 when they were manufacturing the cards. And as part of the research for this book, she went and found several people that were worked that worked in the factory on the assembly line to make the cards and they showed me or they they told me what went into the gum and i talk about that in the in the introduction it's and once you read what's in the gum you'll be even less inclined to uh to try it i almost want to just try it just to remember it i mean not that yeah. i i mean i'll remember it quickly and i'll regret it but it's kind of one of those nostalgic things where i got to go and like all right let me let me try this i don't care if it knocks a filling or two out and i need a root canal yeah. Absolutely. So, 19, so before we get into the book and who you talk to and the whole journey of uh, meeting people that you that, that were in this pack of cards that you had, I want to mention that 1986 season and how great that was because I, it was t- just two years before I was born, uh, but you were a few years old at that time, and you were probably at that age where you were just getting into baseball anyways. You were just not just getting into baseball, but, but retaining some of the knowledge and some of the players and recognizing the players and stuff. But 1986, as I look back, I think it was the greatest baseball season in recent memory. You think about it. Yeah. So I, yeah. I wrote some of the things down. Uh, the rookies coming out of that year, Barry Larkin, Jose Canseco, Will Clark, Wally Joyner, and people forget Wally Joyner was supposed to be the next big thing. Bo Jackson, Barry Bonds. You had Roger Clemens with a historic year with the 20 strikeouts in that one game. Six players. Here's a stat I love. Six players in 1986 had over 50 stolen bases. 
Your leader in today's world in 2021 the, of stolen bases is a guy who has maybe 25 in a season. You're getting guys that are routinely getting 70. Your Vince Coleman's, your Ricky Henderson's, your Harold Reynolds. Uh, and then, of course, you get to the playoffs, the LCS in, the, in Anaheim with the Dave Henderson home run. Then you have in the National League the amazing series where the Mets could, just could not hit Mike Scott. But they hit everybody else, and they're like, well, we got to win this game six, or else we're going to face Mike Scott, and we are going to lose because he's scuffing the ball. And that leads into the World Series in 86 and the Bill Buckner game and uh, just everything. What a season that was. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, 86. I mean, so the reason why I chose that year for the pack of cards was because that was the first year I remember collecting baseball cards and my earliest memories of baseball. But, yeah, that uh, – it's hard. You'd be hard pressed to find a more uh, drama-filled season and postseason than that one. It really was great, and uh, and especially for your true introduction to baseball around that time. I mean, you know, a couple of years. Like I had that too, where some dad took me to the old stadium in Cleveland a little bit, but didn't really retain that stuff. And when you get that introduction, so my major introduction to baseball and. and seeing the guys and just falling in love with the team was the 1995 Indians. And when I'm seeing a whole roster of guys that several of them are in the Hall of Fame right now, others were fringe Hall of Famers, a couple could, should be in the Hall of Fame, but they decided to, you know, take, a, take some uh, testosterone like Manny Ramirez did. But just how much we loved that team. And to this day, if you go into Cleveland, guys can't even – you know, you know, they they go to a restaurant. They never have to pay a tab, even to this day, twenty six years later. So, what was your, you know, first true memories and like some of the guys and the heroes and people that you fell in love with in your early years of following baseball? Well, I grew up in Rhode Island, and so everybody was a Red Sox fan, and uh, I definitely uh, did never follow the crowd and march to a different beat. So, from the the earliest age of following baseball, I knew I was not going to be a Red Sox fan. Um, and so I was sort of a free agent fan. And I really ended up for the silliest reasons becoming a Phillies fan, which was when I was about five. I, my, for some reason, I had a favorite letter and that letter was F. And I don't know why. And I heard the name Philadelphia Phillies and I couldn't spell. And I thought, this is going to be my team. You like now, the alliteration. Yeah, I guess so. I, when I discovered it was PH, I was devastated, but it was too late. And, uh, you know, those were, that was a hard assignment being a Phillies fan in the late 80s. Uh, but my, yeah, my earliest memories there are like rapping. You know, of course, this is all pre-internet uh, and I, we didn't have cable. And so I would wrap my, my radio uh, antenna with tinfoil and be able to pick up the faint signal of the Phillies radio station at night and could listen to the, some of the Phillies games on the radio. And that was, those are some of my earliest memories of, uh, of baseball. Was that, it was Harry Callis calling the games on the radio? Yeah, absolutely. Harry Callis. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, th those Phillies teams, cause you're talking about a Mike Schmidt who was eh, on the outs at that point, he was still productive and he still had, a, he won a couple of MVPs at that time, but yeah, those are some dark days in Philadelphia. And you really did, I mean, outside of a couple of, you know, bright spots where they, they competed in 91. And, you know, you had guys like Lenny Dykstra who came over in that trade. And uh, then you start seeing the building blocks with Darren Dalton and everybody. But, uh, yeah, and then it all came together. I'm sure I'm sure you being you, – you had to be in your early teens at that time when they made it in 93. That completely 
strange ball club that <laughs> that had no business even being in the playoffs, much less the World Series. Yeah, that was. I mean, that was like the the thrill of my childhood that night. Um, such a an anomalous season. Just everything broke right for them that year, and uh, you know they really they could have. He could have easily won that World Series. I mean, Mitch Williams' two bad outings, you know, could have been different. Yeah. Or, or do you still hate Joe Carter? <laughs> no, I, you know, as a as a spiteful 12-year-old, 13-year-old, I remember after that game, I, I like, I was more mad at Mitch Williams and I like shredded his baseball card. But, you know, if there's one thing I learned from this book of tracking down these ex-major leaguers, it was really understanding how much <clears throat> we all have in common with these baseball players and the sort of the, the the ways that make us more similar than different. And so I really have a much, uh, I mean, it really humanized baseball players for me doing this book. Cause I, I remember about 94. So uh, I, we got a, I went to like some card show and I got a massive amount of baseball cards. I'd say probably the vast majority of cards in my collection were from 1994 so there were like three different there was like tops and Fleer, and there was something something else and i had a lot of these same cards and this is why i was just when i saw this book that, that was out there when I, I saw it advertised at first before i even got you on i'm like oh man that's a great concept for a book is finding all these random guys like what like what the heck is phil plantier doing right now from that 1994 card set what about kevin gross what's he doing like all those random guys that would just keep popping up in my in my card set and uh and and then when i saw this and then you went through the 86 team and in the the group of cards that were there i'm like oh man that's a great concept for a book so how did it go from in your process of like hey i have these old cards with the bubble gum to i want to track down basically every single one of these guys and wonder what the heck they're doing nowadays. Well, the, I didn't have that first. I had the idea first, right? Okay. I, just like you, I collected cards by the thousands and had those same thoughts. I think the, where are they now? is just universally interesting. And so I had this, this moment of inspiration of like, it made a lot of sense to structure a book around a single pack and be at the mercy of whoever's in that pack. So once I had the idea, I said, okay, I'm going to go out and get a pack that had never been opened and, and see, see where I'm going. And so I did that. I got a pack online um, and then decided, okay, well, whatever it takes, whoever's in here, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to now track them down and, and really go on a, a, the ultimate road trip adventure to find them. So it's, not just, you know, checking in and saying, hey, what are you up to? But really trying to understand them as people. And especially you're talking about a year, 86, where even guys were making pretty good money for that time. So guys making about a mil, maybe two million, three million if, if, if they were like top of the line. But these guys weren't, weren't making millions of dollars at that point. And this was before the massive salary. So you're not talking about guys who had a nice career, maybe played 10 years. They made the veteran minimum and, or make 5 million. Maybe they had one good year where they made 12 million a year in an arbitration deal. And they have a really nice house on the bay somewhere, or they're living nice. You're talking about guys who before that, before the nineties, and these guys were making a ton of money, the pre a rod days, they're probably living pretty humble lives now, right? Yeah. Uh, most of these guys, 
played a long time. So even making modest salaries, they're doing well. I mean, they're not, they're not, most of them are not living huge. Um, but yeah, that was, you know, we're talking about the era, uh, 70s and 80s before the crazy money in baseball. So they had to also figure out that most of these guys were done at 35. Uh, so, you know, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Um, that was a main question that I was interested in, in pursuing. Yeah, that is that is interesting. Where you think about, you had to have that. I mean, obviously, base, baseball players and professional athletes have to have that backup plan of what they're going to do because they are retiring decades before the average person does. But I would say most of them don't, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe now they're getting better at that. There's more awareness. Um, people are just more open about talking about those things. But I think you know, back in the in their era, I, you know, very few of these guys went to college. Um, I don't think there was much thought about what comes next. And if you didn't get into broadcasting, you were opening a car dealership or you're trying to figure out or get a get a regular job. And a lot oh. of these guys, you th- as silly as that sounds just to the mm-hmm. average person, yeah, you have to learn because you didn't really have any skills. Your skills were on the baseball diamond. Your skills were not handling money and, and, and dealing with uh, uh, trying to put a roof over your head with your own money and not just based on your skill set for being a professional athlete. Right. Not to mention that a lot of these guys, even uh, they weren't making crazy money, were not necessarily the smartest with their money. Right. It's like, I mean, you think about you, who you are at, at, you know, 21 or 19. I mean, most, most of these guys, most 19, 21 year olds are not, you know, not don't have it all together. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's very easy. Someone hands you, even in that era, you know, a $30,000 signing bonus or whatever their money they're making, it's very easy to not save and plan. Even in those days that you had like Hall of Famers, first ballot Hall of Famers, guys everybody knows, having to go to towns like Erie, Pennsylvania, and they were doing card shows. They were doing appearances and dinners and speaking banquets because they weren't, again, making the, that kind of money, even in the 70s and 80s. And you were seeing, I mean, so I, I've known several people in broadcasting that they would go to those card shows, even in small towns, and say, yeah, I got a chance to interview Joe DiMaggio. I had Mickey Mantle. I had a, a great interview with him. You say, how did you have that? And they said, because in the off season, they weren't making that kind of money. So, and right. you're talking about 1986 as well, where, yeah, guys are making probably, what, what would you say the salary was at that time? Maybe about half a mil, the average salary? Yeah, probably about average, maybe about that, yeah. So, I mean, and if you were some of the better guys and a couple of them that you got a chance to talk to, and that's why I want to get into next some of those guys that you had an opportunity to track down. So it was 13 players in this card set, right? Uh, 14, but 13 still alive. Oh, 13 still alive. Okay. And you let's let's first talk about the big names like Carlton Fisk. How that that whole process was hilarious. I was when I was reading about that the the Carlton Fisk, where somebody who seems so reliable for so many years behind the plate, not so much when you're trying to interview him. (laughs) Clearly, I don't think Carlton has the same uh, respect for for writers and journalists that he did for his fellow baseball players. (laughs) So, yeah, no, Fisk, I mean, right from from the get-go, when I opened the pack, I was like, oh, boy, this is going to be a tough one. Um, You know, generally, the more successful the player, the harder I think it is to, to get to them even in retirement. And I, even without having done my research yet, I was aware that Fisk was known for being particularly uh, prickly. 
And so I, I, you know, I gave the same effort to all these guys to find them. I did the same things. I got in touch with Fisk's. Uh, he was the only guy that, or he and Doc Gooden were the only people that really had representatives still working with them. I got in touch with his representative. Yeah, she initially was optimistic. And then after she had talked to him and came back, she was just like, no, he's not interested. And so with someone like that, uh, I always knew I was going to write a chapter about every player. So I had to rely a lot on research. But I also wanted to uh, turn the the story of the road trip itself into into part of the adventure. And so I, when I'm on the road uh, and I found out from a source where he likes to golf in Sarasota, Florida, I went through this elaborate uh, scheme to basically lie my way onto the golf course to try to ambush him. And, uh, and so that, that whole chapter is, it's called chasing Carlton. It's all about the, you know, all the different things I did to try to get to, to Fisk. And ultimately I did get to meet with him, but not in the way that, that I had expected. So, um, so yeah, he was a, he was one of the harder ones to, to track down. That, that's the one thing about the book is that, like you said, you're telling a story. This isn't just you're a roving reporter just, hey, where are they now? This isn't a, an e-true Hollywood story. This is a story about uh, kind of everything. And it really is honestly a story about Americana and what baseball represents. And it's that slice mm-hmm. of childhood, of, of youthfulness, of... Uh, the road trip, seeing the open road. And that's kind of what a baseball player does go through, that you're not starting out in New York and Los Angeles. You're starting out in Ogden, Utah. You're starting out in, uh, you know, all these small towns, uh, Everett, Washington. And you kind of, as you get better, you improve, you go to bigger and better cities at that time. And it's kind of, it's a way of, I guess in a way, it's a good form of, what we are as Americans and what we are as people where, yeah, you start out with the small job and you want to work your way up through whatever it's a company or your career. And I, that's what I like the story that you were telling. Yeah. Well, thanks for recognizing that. Yeah. This really, you know, I tell baseball fans, you know, if you really want a, a deep dive into, you know, the baseball statistics and stories and, you know, uh, that kind of thing, don't buy my book because it's not, that read a bill james book right go buy yeah exactly go buy go read bill james this is not bill james this is really the human side of baseball um and it's a narrative like you said it's a story it's it's the individual stories i tried to capture kind of the the essence of these 14 guys as best i could in one chapter Um, but i also tell my own story and and what is it like to go on the road in my mid thirties and to still be a single guy, not married, no kids, not where I thought I would be. About the book. What I thought was interesting too, is not only are you telling the story of your road trip and, you know, going back to childhood, but you also talk a little bit about yourself as well and about how this kind of made you feel kind of, you know, maybe unturn some stones, I guess, and, and go back in time. And you, you kind of look back because, you know, we, we especially during the summertime, I do a lot of reflecting. I go like, oh, I remember summers past. And could I have done this? Could I have done that? And this is the bed I've made and I'm sleeping in it right now. But this actually gave you an opportunity to reflect on your own life as well, especially when you're traveling over 11,000 miles for this book. Yeah, and I, I decided to weave in my own story uh, because I felt like there needed to be some 
overarching story to this book. You know, there needed to be a journey here. And uh, I was I'm hoping that the reader will invest in me emotionally as I kind of talk about my past and my mistakes. And, you know, I, as you said, I talk about um, I, I meet up with a with an ex-girlfriend I haven't seen in almost 10 years. Um, I talk about my struggles with OCD and, you know, how uh, the, the ways that I manage anxiety and fear are in some ways similar to what I learned from these baseball players and how they've managed to manage their own anxiety and their own fear. So, um, yeah, there's a lot in there. And then, you know, there's a, a big theme around fathers and sons. And I, one of the things that, that shocked me in doing the, the book was how many of these players had, had really, you know, bad relationships with their fathers. And that became an ongoing theme. And then I, you know, my, my own father joins me on the road for a little bit. And we talk about, I talk about my relationship with him and the ways that uh, it works and the challenges and that sort of thing. Yeah. That's uh, the, the father son relationship in the book is interesting because you're talking about guys that I, I what would you say the, probably the average age of, of these players at the time, or maybe about 30, so you think about it, 30 in 1986 is mid to late 50s, and their fathers are Depression era. And there are a lot of people who had, a lot of baby boomers at that time had issues with their parents at that time. And because they came from a different generation, there was a great generational divide that was going on at that time, especially coming out of the counterculture 60s and into the 70s. So now we're going towards the late 80s and these guys who are have their careers but they still just couldn't get over what was going on and what how they were raised and always i i guess in a way trying to prove themselves to their father that they never felt they were good enough right yeah and some of that but also even more starkly i mean like examples of fathers being abusive abandonment i mean beyond just being emotionally distant we're talking about some real trauma and abuse right and so um you know, that's, that, that leaves a lot of scars, but I will say that the silver lining there is that uh, these guys pretty much across the board have been really good parents themselves and good fathers themselves. So they broke the cycle. Uh, they didn't do to their kids what was done to them. Yeah, that uh, it, it, it is really interesting, and and that's honestly doing this podcast and and, and talking to you and when I post this. I know I'm going to get a call from my dad because now every week I'm putting out a podcast and my father calls me every Wednesday or Thursday whenever he listens to it and says, really enjoyed this interview. And it's it's a new form of bonding because my dad, not the most technologically advanced, and he's just kind of learning what what is this Spotify stuff. And But there are some of those things where you get together and you have a common bond. And that's honestly what baseball was in sports in general for, for me growing up with my dad. I never really had a complicated relationship with him, and I still don't. And I, it, it took until probably my late 20s, early 30s for me to really appreciate that because there are a lot of people that aren't as fortunate. Right. Well, I'll share a story, a recent story with you that isn't in the book, obviously. So you know, my dad and I, sort of like you and your dad, you know, baseball is a is a common um, bonding thing for us. We talk about a lot. And just recently, and my dad, you know, he's he's a slow adopter with technology and figuring that all out. So he's, he texts a little bit, but he lives in Chicago. I live in the Bay Area, so I don't really see him that often. And uh, he... Um, 
a couple months ago, or maybe like a month ago, when all the, the the voting legislation was happening in Atlanta, they moved the All Star Game. You know, so my dad is very conservative. I'm much more liberal, um, and he texted me and said that he was uh, he was not watching. I, I he's a big Dodger fan. I texted him about the Dodgers, and he wrote back and he's like, "I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not watching baseball now because I'm upset about uh, what happened there." And I wrote back to him and I said, "You know." I mean, it's fine. You have your politics. I have mine. And, you know, we're all entitled to that. But just think before you do, before you say, I'm going to square off baseball, like think about, is it worth it? Right. Is like, what, think about the bigger effect of that. And, you know, kind of the subtext of what I was saying was like, for me and my dad, baseball is one of the few things we have to talk about. And, you know, I would hate to see us lose that because of some silly, you know, political thing. Yeah. And um, and then I was just back in Rhode Island where I grew up with him a couple of weeks ago and we hadn't really talked since then. And I was re- it was really heartwarming that when we got together and we're in the living room that he put on the baseball game and it was sort of this unspoken thing of like, OK, like I, I heard you, you know, I, I, you know, baseball is more important that our and our our relationship is more important than some political thing. Yeah. So. That was really special to me. That's that's excellent. Yeah. It uh, and, and now see that I'm not I'm the opposite in that case. I haven't been watching baseball, but that's for two reasons. One of them is this Bally Sportsnet, you know, this new Fox Sports that's now Bally's, and I don't I have YouTube TV, and we don't get that, so yeah, I can't I, even watch. I can't yeah, watch I can't games. Watch- I can't watch games for the same reason, yeah. And then also because of the amount of strikeouts and the launch angle and all this other stuff, it just it's it's really yeah. it, it's starting to really bother me. And it's and it's odd because when things got delayed last year with the pandemic and didn't play until July, I spent a lot of time watching old games and old um, like the Mel Allen this week in baseball videos that were on YouTube. And yeah. it was funny because my wife's working from home, but I wasn't. So I would come home and we had different hours. So she worked second shift. I worked first shift. So when I got home, I put on the TV and I'm watching some of these old baseball things. And she'll, she'll walk in, get ready for her job and say, so what year is this? And I'm like, oh, it's 1982. Oh, okay. Well, are you going to watch something from 2020? N- no. No, this is more interesting. 1986. There, there's one of those baseball seasons on MLB Network from 1986. That's fantastic. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'd rather watch that because I'm seeing guys steal bases. There's hit and run. Not every guy's hitting 50 home runs. Um, you know, right. occasionally you had a Dave Kingman and you had a Rob Deere and you had a some of these guys with – yeah, they'd strike out a little bit, but not like it is today. And that's why I love how nostalgic the the book is, and some of these some of these players that you had an opportunity to talk to. And I want to get into some more of those players because it was just it was a different era that I really really enjoyed, and I pine for. I pine for the days of the opposite field single, the days of oh well, Rod Carew, he was just a slap hitter. Yeah, he was a slap hitter with over three thousand hits. He wasn't a guy that, uh, like Joey, Ga- I always bring up Joey Gallo as a great example because every single infielder is on the right side of the field. Now, wouldn't you think you just dink it down the left field line, you get a double every time? No, he's hitting where everybody else is. So instead of going that, saying that, say, oh, no, I'll just try to hit it over them and out of the ballpark. I'm like, that, that's not the baseball I enjoy. So, yeah, whenever I'm with my dad, it's usually us complaining about the state of baseball, but it is something that does bring us together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think baseball and all professional sports are in a moment of reckoning where they're having to decide, is our goal to 
entertain or to make money. And those two things can be at odds, right? Yeah. Because the game may be, um, you know, it, or, it, you know, it, it may be smart to do all those things analytically, but is it actually going to, you know, entertain your fans, right? That's another question. Well, I think... I think the misperception in baseball right now is that uh, the fans just want to see home runs, and I, I don't think that's the case. I mean, yeah, a home run every so often is nice, but when there's guys, when it's like a twelve to eight game, and there's been nine home runs hit by by both teams together, you go, okay, all right, well, they hit another home run, but a stand up triple, uh, how about a, a great catch in the gap? What about um, a, a guy who steals second and then he steals third? I think that for for a fan is more exciting, but also you know we're in a different generation of the the phones at the b- baseball game, the fan duel, the uh, well Twitter and Instagram and everything else to look at, and the different distractions. And baseball's a thinking man's sport. Baseball's a sport, but the best part of I like about baseball is that I can go to the game and have my phone out and take a picture of the scoreboard and the sunset behind there and post it on Instagram. Or I could sit there with my dad or a buddy, drink a beer, talk about life. We don't even have to talk about the how great the pitcher is doing or uh, this guy has three hits today. We could talk about life. And that's what I loved about ba- love about baseball. And I don't know, am I, in a, am I a dying breed at that point? I'm not sure. No, I think even baseball is acknowledging what you're saying because they're, they're trying now. I mean, they're doing all these experiments this year in the minor leagues with moving down back and changing the rules and they know that it, you know, they're losing support. Yeah. That's, I, I think they got to start, in my opinion, don't move the mound back, but move the fences back a little bit. I think uh, 325 down the line and eh, make it 370. See how, see how that goes. Center field, make it 420. Make, make us go to the old polo grounds where there's a real poke down over there to center field. Um, so a couple of the others, uh, uh, the big names, and we'll get to the smaller names because I know that's more of your expertise because that, that's right up your alley. Uh, but Doc Gooden, he, he wanted a little compensation for being interviewed, right? Yeah, well, to your point about guys in the old days would charge to get their autograph in the offseason, well, I think Doc never grew out of that. You know, he's, he's continued to live off his past fame. And so for him, you know, his way he makes money is still – you know, doing appearances and that sort of thing. So he was the only player that wanted to charge me to meet with him. And I, I said I would do it. Uh, he wanted $500 to interview him. I said I would do it, as, but I was going to be up front and report that and, and tell the reader that I was doing that, you mm-hmm. know, so that it was very transparent. Uh, but with, with Doc, that's one of the sadder chapters in that, um, you know, he's sort of back, his old demons coming back again. And, you know, ultimately, even though I didn't get to, to sit down with Doc, in a way, it may have made the book better because I did get to spend time with his oldest son, Dwight Gooden Jr. And with, with Dwight Gooden, one of the challenges was always, how do you tell this, how do you tell something, say something new about a guy that's had, you know, so many books written about him and had his whole career covered in detail? And the way that I ended up working was telling his son's story, which was something that really hadn't been told before. So uh, I was really proud of how that worked out. Yeah, the, and you know, it's interesting about that 86 Mets team. Is uh, A couple of months ago, I got a chance to interview Daryl Strawberry. And mm-hmm. I'm talking to him, and 
he's he doesn't really want to talk about his past. It his he's one of those guys that just he's looking ahead. He's found he's found God. He's very religious right now. He's I think he's a, even a minister as well. And and he's living in St. Louis for a guy who grew up in L.A. and played in New York and L.A. and then back to New York. Yeah, he's uh, kind of he he moved to the middle of the country and is living a simple life. And I finally asked him towards the end of the interview. Uh, you know, if you talk to guys and how, how do they feel about uh, guys like Doc Gooden and everybody else feel about your change? And they're like, and he admitted, he's like, uh, yeah, they don't talk to me. They don't talk to me about any of that stuff. So for somebody, for a team that is, I think there's a 30 for 30 coming out about that 86 Mets team and just how crazy it was to the point, to the point where Lenny Dykstra was actually the least crazy person on that team is <laughs> uh, just incredible to think. But it, it, what's amazing about that is that changeover of uh, of like, the relationships and how we as fans and from the outside want to romanticize things that may not be you know as as cut and dry and that we don't know the full story and somebody like Doc Gooden that Doc Gooden when we think of him we think of the '84 season we think of how dominant he was in '84 '85 and into '86 but he also pitched for another almost 15 years where it was very mediocre, if you think about it. And in his final years, he played with the Indians, where he was just soft-tossing it over the plate, and then played with uh, Tampa, and I think Houston is where he ended his career. So he was basically playing for a paycheck at that time. So that's And for him to say, oh, if you're going to interview me, I request $500, that's, uh, uh, that's, that's an interesting story in and of itself. Yeah, right. I mean, you don't have, I mean, you can just report that, and there's a, a lot you can infer, right? Yeah, and then the other one was talking about another former Met is Vince Coleman. You were trying to track him down in Jacksonville as well. Yeah, and, and yeah, Vincent Van Gogh, um, <laughs> the ultimate, the poster boy of your of your small ball that you like. Um, Whitey, but ball. actually, yeah, but actually not a very great player. If you look at everything outside of stolen bases, um, you know there wasn't there wasn't a lot there. Um, certainly had an amazing speed. And, but yeah, Vince was just, again, someone that flat out, nope, don't want to talk to you. So for him, I went in and went into his neighborhood he grew up in in Jacksonville and ended up finding uh, a deacon or a, a pastor at his old church and high school classmate and really did some, some um, reporting about where he grew up. Yeah, that's uh, Vince Coleman. By by the time I was really starting to watch, I was watching old videos that my dad had in the '80s. I'm like, oh, this guy's pretty good, but he's not very good right now. He was playing with Kansas City at the time, and he he lost about not. He didn't even lose a step. He lost five steps at that point. He just wasn't stealing bases. He wasn't really much of anything. But uh, but those are really the only guys that you had problems trying to track down and trying to get a hold of. Everybody else seemed to be pretty responsive, right? Yeah, I mean, I was really overwhelmed and, and, and happy with and Gary Templeton and Rick Sutcliffe and Steve Yeager and Rance Mullenix, Lee Mazzilli. And you know, these guys had you know really nice, long careers, and they were great. They were very gracious. Uh, I, you know, they were very generous with their time. And, and I was only able to write the book that I was to the, to the extent that they were willing to open up and share and be vulnerable. Yeah, you weren't you weren't going in being TMZ. You were going for what what's happening to them right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, also, uh, you yeah. know, I mean, also asking some pretty probing questions that, to their credit, they didn't shy away from. And especially doing some certain activities as well. I mean, you're 
there with Randy Reddy, and he's scrolling through Tinder at that time. He's trying to find a date. Right. Well, to, to, to be fair, I was the one that showed him how to use Tinder. Oh, uh, really? He, oh, okay. Yeah. I, I, I remember the Tinder story, but I didn't know that you were the one who told him, like, hey, by well, the way. Yeah, he, we're, we're at a bar in Dallas. We went bowling together, and we're drinking beer. And, um, you know, I didn't know this, but he was in the middle of a divorce. Uh, and so, and, and kind of a sad divorce. And so I said, hey, well... <laughs> This will this will cheer you up and just showed him, you know, and he he got a laugh out of, you know, just looking at Tinder for a minute. But um, but yeah, no, I was I thought it would be much more engaging for the reader to go along with me if I did a lot of things with the players, like getting getting a hitting lessons from Rance Mullenix and playing cards against humanity with Jaime Kokenauer and you know, going uh, bowling with Randy Reddy and to the zoo with Don Carmen and all these different experiences. That's it's just so cool because it's not only you're just me because it's it's one thing if you meet a, a guy at a card show. I met Jose Canseco one time at a card show and I got a picture with him and he wanted to be anywhere else on the planet than at this card show and having stupid me put my arm on his shoulder and getting a quick cheesy photo. It's like he's probably like, look, I got to do this. You know, they're paying me however much to come to Canton, Ohio to do this. All right, whatever. Rolls his eyes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to, you know, to an extent, I almost respect someone like Fisk, Carlton Fisk more, who just doesn't do that. He wants to be private. Like, to me, like, if you're going to if you're going to charge money and do these appearances like Jose Canseco, you got to embrace it. Like, either you're in or you're out. Right. Don't be a dick. Um, if you're there to meet fans who, who want to see you, you know, you're getting paid. Yeah. If you don't want to do it, just don't do it. Right. I mean, so I think that, uh, you know, I didn't run into that at all. These guys that I met with were all very happy to, to talk and, and, um, didn't, no one gave me that attitude. I love your, I mean, cause you're, since you're a Phillies fan, I loved your attachment to Don Carmen, a guy that a lot of people have no idea who Don Carmen is. I know him cause he's a pitcher. He pitched for the Phillies for a while, but uh, a lot of people don't know that, but you were always very attracted to the lesser known players. And that's kind of how I was. I remember in the nineties going to, uh, it was Jacobs field at the time. And I loved going to school wearing the new Indians gear and whatever Indians player that was was there. But everybody had Albert Bell. Everyone had Kenny Lofton. Everyone had Omar Vizquel and Jim Tomey. I wanted the other guys. I wanted Anar Diaz. I had an Anar Diaz shirt. I wanted guys like David Segui and some of those guys that you just don't think about at the top of your head of who played for the team. And I always wanted to get – and I think in my mind it was also one of those where if I would get one of those shirts and then I wear it years from now, they say, where did you find that? And like right. almost to the point where I want to be at the grocery store wearing that Anar Diaz shirt and I get a tap on my shoulder and it's Anar Diaz himself going, how did you find that? Who, who are you? Are you are we related? Right. <laughs> you were always attracted to some of those guys that were just, you know, they were kind of clinging on. They were hanging on for a little bit. Yeah, the underdog. I mean, I think that I, and that's because I identify as an underdog myself. And I talk in the book about growing up and getting picked on and, you know, um, never, never being, uh, I was, I wasn't the, the cool kid in high school. So I think from a young age, I, I identified with those guys being the underdogs. Did, uh, when you're talking to some of these, uh, players and, and we're talking 86, 
Um, this was the before really knowing about steroids. I, I don't remember in the book if you had mentioned that, but did you talk to any of the players about was this a, a phenomenon that was going on? Because we heard steroids in the 90s, but as we know with guys like Lyle Alzado, uh, Canseco as well, they were experimenting all the way in the mid to late 80s with steroids, and they kept it going through the 90s. And it seemed like Major League Baseball yeah. kind of took a, you know, it was like out of sight, out of mind until they couldn't avoid it anymore. Well, all you had to do was watch those old, you know, this week in baseballs from the eighties to know that these guys were producing back then. They've all got the build of an insurance salesman. <laughs> um, but there were a few, I mean, Canseco, you know, is openly talked about being kind of the, the pioneer of steroids. Right. I did, you know, ask some of these guys that there's it's documented that a lot of them back in, in the seventies and eighties, it was more about taking greenies, um, you know, amphetamines, cocaine, you know, those were the drugs, but, you know, those were just more, you know, an energy boosters than they were like helping you hit home runs. Yeah. So, because nowadays they they have a lot of you even have athletes who are endorsing pre workout supplements that I guess are performance enhancers, but they're not banned like Balco and all the you know the HGH and the uh, and obviously the steroids and everything. But uh, yeah, are are you telling me that you don't think Jim Gantner was on steroids in those days? You know, the guy who looks like a high school chemistry teacher. Well, yeah, if he was, I would be. I would like to see the before picture. <laughs> I want to. I want to ask you about Gary Templeton because uh, you you got to hang out with him a little bit. But his story in baseball is interesting because I th- we're a different society nowadays, and I think Gary Templeton probably got the raw end. Well, I shouldn't say probably. He did get the raw end of the deal, what ended up happening. But what was reported originally about Gary Templeton and some of his behavior and leading out of St. Louis that I think had he played nowadays, there'd be a lot more uh, people would be a lot more sympathetic towards him. Yes. Um, so Templeton to me was one of the highlights of the book because um, he, oh, sorry, uh, Okay. Uh, yeah, so Templeton was one of the highlights of the book because uh, he really gets in, and tells me the whole story about what happened in this incident in 1981 where he doesn't run out a ground ball and um, uh, the, the fans in uh, St. Louis start to get on him and he ends up like flipping them off and then uh, he, gets, he gets tossed out of the game and Whitey Herzog is furious with him and then he goes and gets suspended from the team for a few weeks and has to go into psychiatric evaluation and, and you know, really gets hung out to dry in the press and by the team. And so Templeton was, was really um, forthcoming in telling me the whole story there and some of the thing, I mean, these horrible racial things that were, that were screamed at him by the fans that, that prompted him to react in that way. And so, you know, and as he said, like all of his teammates, they all knew what had happened, what was said, but no one defended him. No one stood up for him. Um, so I think you're right that now that would be handled very differently. And I think Templeton was just a, a super talented, um, you know, confident, maybe cocky uh, black guy in, in the late 70s, mid 70s in St. Louis. And Whereas now that confidence would maybe be more celebrated, although baseball is still slow to kind of let go of their old school mentality. Um, you know, back then you were, he was labeled a militant, you know, for, for the way he was. So, yeah, I think that, you know, wrong, 
wrong tie, wrong place for, for Templeton. Yeah, and especially in the Midwest in those days, in the 70s and in, into the 80s, is uh, I just uh, interviewed Dave Parker a couple of weeks ago. And Dave Parker is another one who went through that similar situation where, I mean, think, name me a better player in baseball from 75 to 80 than Dave Parker. I mean, I'm talking about overall talent, guy who can hit for average, power, a cannon for an arm, he can run like the wind, and was a guy that it, he wanted more money, he wanted a bigger contract. And in Midwestern towns like Pittsburgh and St. Louis, if they had black players, they wanted them to be a little bit more humble. They wanted right. them to be like, oh, golly shucks, you know, kind of like a, a Tony Gwynn. Like if, if a Tony Gwynn played in Pittsburgh, there'd be 17 statues of him. Uh, right. Willie Stargell. Willie Stargell, people loved, to, even to this day, he's been gone 20 years, loved Pops. But Dave Parker was a guy that they shouted everything and anything and everything from the crowd at Three Rivers Stadium towards him because he they thought he was too cocky. They thought he was too greedy for money. Uh, There's a recession going on and people are losing their jobs left and right and the steel plants and whatever are closing, yet this guy wants a million dollars. How dare he do that? And I think Gary Templeton probably went through a similar situation there in St. Louis. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I've never understood why even those days the players got vilified, but the owners who had who were orders of magnitude more rich, you know, white and greedy, they never got, you know, the, the public didn't really turn on them. Yeah. That, uh, but it, I, it, what, now, did he seem, did, did Gary Templeton seem more humble nowadays, or is he, is he still have, in your discussion with them, did he still seem kind of bitter towards what happened in St. Louis? I wouldn't say, I think Gary's always going to be a, a confident guy but he seemed more comfortable like less angry i guess you could say or you know he, he seemed to be at peace with with what happened he still doesn't like what happened um but you know he's mellowed a little bit he's i think accepted things he's older yeah that's uh it's it's very interesting gary templeton that was one of those first players i remember growing up and going like oh he's my dad's age Born in '56, that's amazing, yeah. uh, and, and obviously traded for Ozzie Smith. So right. kind of worked right. out for both teams, even though uh, San Diego, another one of those towns that uh, it's just a, it's a sleepy baseball town, is what it yeah. is. Uh, what, by the way, what I want to ask you about you. Uh, so, what brought you from Rhode Island all the way out to the Bay Area? Well, I've been in California since uh, after college, and I moved out to first to Santa Barbara in 2002 for a magazine internship and ended up uh, going to the Bay Area in 2006 for grad school and got my PhD at UC Berkeley. Um, so I have kind of a dual career of teaching and, and writing. And yeah, I just fell in love with the Bay Area. I live in, I live in downtown Oakland now and uh, really enjoying it. Even though uh, when we record this, this is the week that it was brought up that there's a possibility the Oakland A's might be moving and following suit from the Warriors who moved to San Francisco, following suit from the Raiders who moved to Vegas. So how how has that been in Oakland right now? How are they treating this? No, it's just such an, I mean, it's a, you can do 10 PhDs on sort of the, all the different moving parts of, of what it's like to keep the A's in Oakland. Um, so many competing interests, you know, I think that, I think the A's have, you know, they've, they're trying to, they do want to stay They're They're working hard, I think, but they're asking for a lot of public funding in the city. You know, there's a lot of issues in Oakland where homelessness is out of control. Um, so it's, you know, I think the city council, it's up to them, but it's hard for them to justify 
hundreds of millions of dollars of investment when other things may be more urgent. Like, what is it that that they haven't been able to get anything together? I mean, they've been in that stadium now 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 five years, and uh, and obviously the Raiders left, and they came back, then they left again, and the Oracle Arena is not was basically empty. I don't know what they're doing right now, but uh, what is it that they are not able to get anything together? I mean, it's been this has been several years. We heard Fremont, we heard San Jose, but then the Giants have a blockade with San Jose and. There's all these other uh, variables that have gone into this, and they're still playing in that dump of a stadium. <laughs> well, basically, the issue is that I think everybody would prefer, everybody but the A's would prefer for them to build a new stadium on the current site because it's it's convenient to the the BART, the public transportation. It's not going to interfere with any of the uh, local businesses. Um, but the A's just don't think it's it's enough of a moneymaker to redevelop that, you know, that part of East Oakland is economically depressed and it doesn't show a lot of potential for growth. So the A's want to build a stadium kind of downtown where they could have this multi-use, you know, in terms of uh, hotels and restaurants and businesses in the surrounding area that would um, make them more money, but also potentially get, make Oakland more money. And the challenge is that if we go downtown, um, you know, there's existing businesses, the, the port of Oakland, that are concerned about bringing a stadium in and how that could affect their business and, you know, the environmental impacts, the traffic, all of that. So you've got everyone basically not, you know, not in my backyard kind of mentality. And you've got the city not wanting to put up a lot of public money. And you've got this, and the the team being pretty stingy. So it's kind of a, a lot of, you know. But then again, you know, I guess they're saying Las Vegas could be the best option because the Raiders are already out there. But outside of Las Vegas, I don't know that the A's. I mean, you, we forget that the Bay Area is a giant market. You know, if you go from the Bay Area to Nashville or or you know Portland, I don't know. If, you make any more money in those places. Yeah, so, well, and if they knock down the Coliseum, what, what would they play in? Is, is Sacramento their still still their AAA affiliate that they just play up the road? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, or they maybe they would do a thing with the Giants where they, you know, when the Giants are out of town, they play in, in Oracle. I'm not sure. That's what I wish to, what happened in the 90s with the Browns is when the Browns were about to move. It's I'm thinking, well, if you wanted a new stadium and – the city's willing to pony up the money and put a syntax and whatever whatever else it is, that they could have knocked down that old stadium and built where they eventually did and play their home games in, I don't know, Columbus for a couple of years. Just, okay, Browns fans make a two-hour trip to Columbus and play at uh, where Ohio State is, and instead they moved to Baltimore and well, they haven't really been too good until just recently. And uh, But yeah, the, the, the moving, a t- moving a team is one thing, but Having multiple teams move out of your town, where Oakland had three teams in town just five years yeah. ago, and now they're right. all gone. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, almost all gone. And if the A's end up leaving, I. I but I, I guess for your sake, it's it's a good thing you're not an A's fan. You're just watching for, as an outsider. Well, actually, I've become an A's fan uh, more than the Giants because they are more the underdog team here. But uh, but I'm a Phillies fan, yeah, first. So, uh, it, by the way, what do you, what do you think of? Um, Speaking of uh, base, uh, last thing I'll ask you, um, but uh, Citizens Bank Park, I'm assuming you've probably gone there, right? I have, but only once, and that was in the 2009 World Series, which was a great time to go. Oh, yeah. Um, 
beautiful park. Uh, haven't been, like I said, in, in 12 years, but I'd love to love to go back again. I wanted to, before things shut down last year, I really wanted to go to, uh, my, my wife and I, we just got married last year, and we wanted to do a road trip where we'd, we'd fly into Seattle and take the PCH all the way down to San Diego. And then yeah. maybe go to Vegas or do whatever, but uh, we wanted to head down there, and I was trying to plan it out so I would go see a game at eight, it, well, it, what is it called, Oracle, yeah, where the Giants play. And then I'm like, i, I got to see how dumpy of a stadium this Oakland Coliseum is. I hear everybody say, yeah, it's a terrible place. I'm like, I've been to Tropicana Field, and that wasn't pretty good. That wasn't too good either. And I've been to the Sky Dome in Toronto. So I got to check this out, and then things shut down, and we had to reroute everything. Just like everybody else had to reroute everything in 2020. But, uh, yeah, one of these times I would like to go out and check out uh, the Bay Area. I've been to L.A. and I've been to San Diego a number of times, but I I just haven't gotten – and I've been to Sacramento, but I've never been to uh, Oakland or I haven't been to San Francisco. So one of these days I would like to check that out, whether the A's are in a new stadium or not. We'll see. Well, I actually really like the Coliseum. I mean, it is a dump, but, um, you know, for – someone like me and it's also affordable like you know you can get an upper deck seat still over 15 bucks so i like it you know to me a field is a field and uh i've enjoyed many games there i'd like to see him knock over knock down the mount davis in the outfield again yeah that's that's kind of an eyesore yeah (laughs) it was just uh not not very good but i'm an angels fan so i've been out to anaheim and they did that back in the day when the Rams moved there for, what, 15, 16 years, and then they knocked that down, and it's another stadium that's kind of showing some age. But uh, uh, Well, the book, by the way, is Wax Pack, and it, it's, it's fantastic, and I, I love all the stories. I love the concept of it, and again, like we were talking about earlier, it's more than just baseball. It's, it really is a nice slice of Americana, and Brad, thank you so much for being a part of this. And I know the book came out last year, but uh, do you have any other? Uh, do, you, do you have anything to plug? And do you have any other possibilities? Where are there any other baseball packs that you might want to break open and do part two? <laughs> no, probably not a direct sequel. Now I have other writing projects that uh, I will pursue at some point. But um, yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on. And uh, the book, uh, you can go to waxpackbook.com. I'm on. Twitter at Wax Pack Book and happy to uh, to engage with people.